Hey, it's Sonia. Before we start this week's episode, we wanted to give you a content warning. This episode contains descriptions of violent crime of a sexual nature and of execution. This is a sensitive topic, and it may not be for everybody. So if you want to come back next week, we'll see you then. The last time Utah executed someone was in 2010. Ronnie Lee Gardner was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. He spent 25 years on death row before his execution by firing squad. I'm Emily Means. And I'm Sonia Hudson. This week on State Street, we're going to talk about Utah's debate over the death penalty. There's a bill sponsored by Republicans that would repeal it. It would not apply to anyone currently on death row, just to cases going forward. But it's been running into some big opposition by Republican leadership. It's been stuck in the Rules Committee all session long, and it just got assigned to a committee last week. We'll talk to one person about the conservative argument for repealing the death penalty, and we'll hear the view from the Utah Attorney General's office, which is pushing against the bill this year. The U.S. reinstated the death penalty back in 1976, and since that time, Utah has put seven people to death. And like we mentioned earlier, the last time that they did that was in 2010, so about 12 years ago. And again, that was Ronnie Lee Gardner, who was executed by firing squad. That was actually a choice that he made back in 1985 when he was sentenced. Right. He had the choice of either lethal injection or firing squad. Utah got rid of the firing squad as a method of execution in 2004, but because Gardner was convicted before they eliminated that option, he was basically grandfathered in. Mm -hmm. A group of reporters was there to witness his execution. I talked to Jennifer Dobner, who was a criminal justice reporter with the Associated Press at the time, and she described what that experience was like. So the execution room is shaped like a rectangle. It is, you know, deep inside the prison. It has cinder block walls that are all painted white. And in the center of one wall is the chair. And it's a black metal chair that sits on this um, riser. There's a headrest and then there are straps for the legs, for the waist, for the arms, and one for around the head. And so about 25 feet from where the chair is, uh, is the other wall where the gun port is. And it's a match set of rifles, one of which has a wax bullet. And then on either side are these like observation rooms. The drapes are closed over the windows before the thing happens. And then they like open and the lights are very bright in the chamber and they're all pointing at the condemned. And so he's wearing a dark navy jumpsuit and a white t-shirt and there's a target on his chest, a white square with a circle. And then the warden came in, he, um, he asked Mr. Gardner if he had anything to say. Mr. Gardner shook his head no. And then they placed a hood over his head and then the warden leaves. And it's like the kind of silence that you can like hear it, right? It's this pregnant pause sort of moment. Lots of tension in the air. You sort of don't know when it's coming. So then it's sort of like this surprising explosion when it happens. We didn't see any blood. Um, I thought it would be sort of messier than it was, but I think the dark clothes made it difficult to see. The warden came out and, um, you know, lifted the hood to check his eyes and then looked 
for a pulse on his neck. I can't remember if he said something, if he just made a sign that it was over, but it only took, I want to say it was like two minutes and 17 seconds from the time that he was shot until the time that he was pronounced dead. So it was very, very quick. When we went in to inspect the chamber, um, there's no sign that anything really had happened, but all you can smell is bleach because someone has been in to, to clean up. You know, it was 25 years from the time that Mr. Gardner was convicted and condemned to die. I, it's, it's, I don't feel like for me, it felt like justice. When you're the family members of a victim, um, it sets you up for an event, an eventuality that takes a lifetime, really. I'm not sure that that's justice for someone who has a broken heart. I also think that there is a possibility that at some point between, you know, the 19-year-old or the 20-year-old who shot someone and killed them and the 49 or 50-year-old who's been sitting there all those years, I, I mean, I think they're not the same person. I, I don't know where the sense is in that, you know, the, the, the waiting changes everything for everyone. Gardner's execution took place more than a decade ago, Sonia, but nothing has really changed since then. Right. We're still having this debate and there are still seven people on Utah's death row. And since then, there have been multiple attempts over the past few years to repeal the death penalty in the state. Darcy Van Orden has been organizing against the death penalty since 2016 with the Utah Justice Coalition, which is a group that's working on criminal justice reform. Darcy is a conservative and approaches the issue from that perspective, but she hasn't always supported repealing the death penalty. I actually studied criminology in college at George Mason University, and that's where I got kind of in tune with understanding how broken our criminal justice system was and actually changed my mind on, uh, I previously supported the death penalty until I went, studied it, and kind of learned the data behind it, the risk of innocent life, the, um, you know, the disproportionate amount of people of color who put are put on death row for the same type of offenses that maybe a white person would just otherwise get life without parole. So I saw how you know, prosecutors ultimately are the ultimate decision makers, regardless of the crime. That's really who's driving, who ends up on death row more so than how heinous the crime is. And so for me, it was this very eye-opening situation and something that I felt a, a personal sense of responsibility to do something about at some point in my life. Learning about all these different stats, how demographics plays a role in this, how did that make you feel to, to learn all of this? How it made me feel was I was so shocked that I'm like, 10% of the people could be innocent on death row. It was like this major gut check. I mean, that's that's a massive number. Could you accept that? Could you accept that idea? I can't. I can't live with that idea. And, and as I've worked with murder victims' families over the years, and they've shared their stories, what I hear more often than not is them telling me that they, at the beginning supported the death penalty. And now as this case has played out for decades and re-victimized them in the process, they can no longer support it because they become the next victims of this process and they absolutely can't support it anymore. 
over the years, repealing the death penalty uh, has usually been thought of as like a left-leaning policy. But you are coming at this issue from a conservative perspective. So can you just sum up the conservative argument for getting rid of the death penalty? Well, for starters, um, as somebody who is critical of government and wants the most limited government in nature, I can't support giving government the power to play God. I can't support the giving this government the power to execute people when I feel like government is full of inefficiencies. It's full of human error. I can't trust government to deliver mail to the right house. Why would I trust them to execute people? So that first and foremost. Next argument as a pro-life person, I think my daughter said it best. She was eight years old. She's 14 now when I started this process. She just said, if we're saying murder's wrong, then why are we murdering people? And so from a pro-life standpoint, it's not congruent. And then, and then, of course, it's more expensive. It's much more expensive than life without parole. And so what I would challenge people on is if you knew that it was less expensive to just give life without parole and people are more likely to die of natural causes in prison than to actually be executed, doesn't that make more sense? I'm not, I'm not in any shape or form saying we're, we're letting people off or out. I'm saying this is actually would, would be a cost-saving measure to just simply have life without parole. And it would save the state a lot of money. And we would be safe in this process as well. This is the third time in recent years there's been legislation to repeal the death penalty. And each time it's been sponsored by a Republican, but it never quite makes it through. What keeps getting in the way? In 2016, we passed this bill completely out of the Utah Senate. In 2018, it fell shy in in the House as we started there first, but we were happy to. All, both of those times, we got the bill completely out of committee. Um, and we had an incredible um, conservative advocate, Greg Hughes, at the time. And he was the House Speaker, and he was our champion, and he was helping us make all these wonderful things happen. Um, with new leadership, um, they've held that bill hostage in committee. New legislators have been so open and receptive, I think, to this repeal message. It makes fiscal sense. But a lot of people have come to the conclusion that they might philosophically support the death penalty, but they can't support how the process plays out, that it's costly and cumbersome and inefficient and broken. So it's only logical for them to say, I no longer support this process. Darcy, what are you hearing from critics of this year's proposal? Uh, like you said, we have some pretty high-profile ones. Um, House Majority Leader Mike Schultz and House Speaker Brad Wilson have said they oppose the death penalty repeal this year. Well, nothing I haven't heard before, but I'm also very hopeful that that we're going to have this bill heard and that the individuals we have, like I said, individuals new to the legislature who've never voted on this bill before, who I believe are receptive to repeal. And I think we need to have this opportunity. What would it take for this bill to pass the Republican supermajority legislature? <sighs> um, well, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's a hard one. I mean, we know, we know the numbers that we've got to get there, but I feel like uh, we've never been in a better position to do it. 
I do feel like there is a will of legislators who support this. So um, despite what leadership is saying, um, I'm excited to see what happens this year. Darcy Van Orden from the Utah Justice Coalition. Thanks so much for talking with me. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure as well. I appreciate it. Thank you for bringing attention to this important issue. And a note that an earlier version of the podcast misidentified the types of rifles used during execution. In fact, there are five shooters with 30 caliber rifles. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear from a lawyer with the Attorney General's office about why his office supports keeping the death penalty. You're listening to State Street. Support for State Street comes from the Hinckley Report podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about the biggest political headlines in the Beehive State. Find new episodes of PBS Utah's The Hinckley Report every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to State Street. I'm Emily Means. And I'm Sonia Hudson. One of the powerful groups opposing the repeal bill is the Utah Attorney General's office. I talked to Andrew Peterson, who is an assistant solicitor general in the AG's office, and he basically oversees death penalty cases for the state. I started off by asking him what he's heard about the repeal bill from families of the victims of people currently on death row. Technically, the repeal would not apply to those inmates, just to cases going forward. But he says it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. In terms of the current seven cases that are pending, uh, everybody we have spoken to is very much opposed to repealing the death penalty. And the reason for that is because the bill is meant to be only prospective, but there have been cases both in Connecticut and in New Mexico where the people who are currently on death row, even though they weren't supposed to be relieved of their death sentences, the Supreme Courts in those respective states did overturn their death sentences. And so the victims' families in our cases in Utah are highly anxious about whether that same consequence would obtain in these cases. They're also very concerned about the potential for delay because if this bill passes, everybody on Utah's death row is going to file new petitions that we're going to have to litigate for a minimum of five years. So even if we win that, we've lost because we've lost five or 10 years where those cases have all been ground to a halt. Take me inside one of these conversations. What are these families saying to you? All of them are saying the same thing, that they're frustrated with the delays in their cases. And that's, of course, understandable. The cases have been delayed far, far too long. But they are also committed to seeing the case through to the end, whatever that end may be, because they retain hope for obtaining justice. These are not ordinary murder cases. These are the worst of the worst that have done unspeakable things. In one of our cases, he smashed his way into the grandmother of uh, one of his children. He beat her uh, bloody. He sliced her throat four times. And then he anally and vaginally raped her with that butcher knife. He then went into the 
closet where he hid from the police. And he found himself in the closet with a four-year-old girl who had been hiding and watched the murder. He molested her in the closet. This is not an ordinary murder where life in prison is an adequate punishment. This is an extraordinarily gruesome, brutal, and heinous crime. Wow, that's awful. Um, Thanks for sharing that, though. I think it really, really illustrates what we're talking about here. Can you summarize some of the main reasons why the attorney general's office supports keeping the death penalty in place? There are two main issues that we consider to be more important than the rest. First is the arguments in support of repealing the death penalty do not take into account a certain class of murderers that simply cannot be made safe. Society is not safe from a certain class of murderers, regardless of whether they've been sent to maximum security prison. So that's number one. That Number two is that there are certain crimes that are so heinous that a life in prison alongside you know, people who have committed burglary simply is not proportional to the evil that they've perpetrated. Some murderers really do deserve to die. So you've got kind of a practical public safety argument on the one hand and then kind of a moral argument on the other hand. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, that's right. And my point is to simply say that the arguments in favor of repealing the death penalty have not addressed either of those. Well, let's talk about some of the arguments that people who want to repeal the death penalty talk about. You know, one is that it's not a good use of tax money. You know, a a few years ago, the Utah Legislative Fiscal Analyst Office estimated that a death penalty case here costs taxpayers about $1.6 million more than a life without parole sentence. And then national data shows that only 16% of death sentences actually end in an execution. How does that argument factor into the AG's office belief that we should keep the death penalty? Is it a good use of money? On the 1.6 million, that was a study done by a legislative fiscal analyst. He actually disavowed that number. He was unwilling to stand by it. Sometimes what happens is the person will ultimately plead guilty, and then the parties agree to life without parole, usually, as the sentence. But if you take the death penalty away, what you're left with is the top punishment is life without parole, and no one will ever again plead guilty with life without parole as the sentencing option. Then you're left with two possibilities. Either an aggravated murderer is going to be eligible for parole someday, which is intolerable, or you're going to have to take the case to trial. And if you take the case to trial, that typically results in more appeals, more expensive trials, and the costs go up. If this bill passes, we're actually expecting a system-wide increase in litigation costs across all aggravated murders. And then the other problem with the costs is we're going to have to litigate all of the seven current cases to let the courts decide whether their death sentences can remain after the repeal bill. And that's going to be very expensive. So even if it did turn out to be more expensive, would you still think it's a good use of money to pursue the death penalty? Yes. Obviously, there are limits. I mean, if it was $100 billion per case, that's absurd. We would, we would never spend that. But let's just 
assume for the sake of argument that 1.6 million is an accurate figure, what is the value of each life taken? What is the value of imposing a sentence that more closely approaches what we consider to be true justice. Now, critics of the death penalty also say that, hey, sometimes the courts get it wrong and people are exonerated after being sentenced to death. Now, that has not happened in Utah, but it has in other states. Is that a compelling argument to you and why or why not? It is not. And I would take a little bit of issue with what with one thing you just said, which is that it has happened in other states. If what you mean by that is people have been exonerated from death row, yes, that has happened. But we've never had a case in the modern era where a person was executed and then exonerated. That's not to say it couldn't happen. And Utah is unique in this regard. Utah has a much higher standard for imposing the death penalty than either what the Constitution requires or what most other states require. What would you hope a critic of the death penalty would take away from listening to this conversation? What would you want them to be left with? I would hope that the public would begin to look at the cases and what actually happened there. And I think as you do, some of your moral intuitions begin to lean more in favor of keeping the death penalty for the worst of the worst. Andrew Peterson, Assistant Solicitor General with the Utah Attorney General's Office, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for speaking with me. Sonia, this debate around repealing the death penalty is really interesting to me because I cannot think of another issue that divides Utah conservatives like this. Can you? Well, maybe the Mitt Romney versus Mike Lee slash Trump debate, but I can't think of anything that's actual policy that will impact Utahns that divides conservatives like this issue does. Right. If we're talking policy, this one is really unique. And like I'm having a hard time holding in my head these arguments that Darcy makes. It's not government's role to be involved in this. It's too expensive. And if you're pro-life, you shouldn't support it. And then Andrew is saying these cases are so bad that we need to execute them in order to get justice for the families. Yeah, I mean, for the conservatives that support the death penalty, this is really an exception to their belief in small government. And we're talking core beliefs of conservatism. It doesn't really get more of a core belief than small government. Right. Small government and fiscal responsibility. That's kind of the other thing that's at issue here. And even though Andrew says the money issue isn't so cut and dry... He says even if it was more expensive, there are just some people who deserve to be put to death, even if it costs. I think the fact that this is an exception to those basic beliefs really speaks to how strongly some conservatives feel about this and how strongly they feel about their definition of justice. Mm -hmm. That's really at the heart of the debate around the death penalty. What is justice? Yeah. On one hand, you've got anti-death penalty people saying that dragging out cases, appeal after appeal, ultimately does more harm to the family than good. 
And then some of them even say that execution, you know, the state killing people just doesn't sit right with them. And that's a really personal moral belief. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of this, you've got death penalty supporters who say these are the most evil people. The crimes are so heinous that the only punishment suitable for them is death. And that's what some families of victims want to see. And if you take away that option, Andrew says that you might see more serious offenders finding ways to plead out of life without parole. So they could potentially end up back on the streets. And Emily, these aren't really political arguments. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to your own set of ethics here. And so if we're talking about what's going on at the legislature this year, you know, based on the pushback from Republican leaders in the House, I think it's really unlikely that the death penalty repeal bill will pass this year and it will meet the same fate that it has the other years. Yeah, I totally agree. I would be truly shocked if it made it through the legislature this year. But it's also interesting because we've got the Senate president saying that he's open to maybe changing his mind on this. He, in the past, has been really pro-death penalty, did not want to repeal it. So I think if this will ever pass in Utah, it'll take either just a lot of discussion and committee hearings in future legislative sessions, a lot of time and a lot of conversations. Or, you know, maybe it would take a bunch of other Republican states getting rid of it first. You know, right now, just 23 states have repealed capital punishment and only five of those states have solidly Republican state legislatures. Sonia, life comes at you fast when you're watching a 45-day legislative session. It certainly does. And we are at the halfway point. We made it, kind of. Congratulations. <laughs> halfway. Well, let's talk about what else happened this week. Once again, we're going to talk about taxes. taxes. Last time, I promise. The nearly $200 million tax cut bill passed the full legislature and was signed by the governor. And included in that now law is an across-the-board income tax cut and an earned income tax credit to help low-income people and expanded tax credits for people who are on Social Security. Police reform is back again this year, at least at some level. A bill is moving through the legislature that requires police to intervene when they see another officer engaging in misconduct. That misconduct could be something like using excessive force. It also requires them to report that misconduct, and it prevents any retaliation against them. Lots of people came together on this one, Sonia, including law enforcement, activists, and the Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office. So that was really pretty remarkable, and the sponsor of the bill was really proud of that. The Senate unanimously passed this bill. And, you know, Emily, that really fits in with what we've seen from police reform efforts the last couple of years. If you want to pass a police reform bill in the Utah legislature, you need to get that buy-in from law enforcement. Press access was also up for debate last week. A Senate resolution that limits access to certain areas passed a Senate committee. So under this resolution, in order to access non-public areas, like, for example, the Senate floor or some private hallways, a member of the media would have to get permission from a media designee or a senator. 
Right now, journalists with press credentials can be in some of those places without permission after the Senate adjourns. So this adds another hoop to jump through to get access to lawmakers. That does it for this episode of State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. The team includes Caroline Ballard, Elaine Clark, Brenton Weiniger, Renee Bright, Ivana Martinez, and Jim Hill. Our theme music was written by Roddy Nickpour. State Street is a production of KUER. If you liked what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. It really helps other listeners find the show. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the legislature, Sonia and I send out a weekly recap newsletter. You can sign up for that at statestreetpod.org. See you next week. We are at the halfway point. We made it, kind of. Congratulations. (laughs) Halfway. From KUER.